If you like this podcast, you'll probably like other podcasts made by Lush. Maybe, potentially, hopefully. Definitely. You should tune in to the Lush podcast with me, Nilla Davies. And me, Olivia Graham. Available on iTunes. Like, link, subscribe. With a great gallery of characters, punk rock is one of those eternally fabled eras of British pop culture, with a cast of mavericks that are deeply embedded into our cultural psyche. Central to the story was Jordan, whose iconic look invented his style, and whose presence as a dominatrix behind the counter of Malcolm Vivian's sex shop, her role at the heart of the Sex Pistols and Adam and the Ants, and her iconic looks have just been detailed in her acclaimed autobiography, released this week. In the book, I think it's Eric's, but somebody Wait. did at one stage blame me for being me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can go for a lot of other things. It was who the fuck do you think you are, Jordan or something? <laughs> <laughs> and I'd go, well, I am, and you fucking are. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd go, well, I am, and you fucking are. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, so, I mean, a lot of that space going around with the outside, that period of time, I mean, that band, I mean, and the history is remembered as being a, a great pop band, but that time they're the ultimate, freakiest, weirdest, heaviest underground band, weren't they? Yeah, I think a lot of people forget mm-hmm. just really how deeply sort of sado-sexual and was, especially Adam, he had a, a, an amazing art vision of himself, which you know, changed obviously over the years, but um, I thought it was a, a very, very strong, his, his whole, uh, he was committed to the lyrics as well as the look, and that look was a, a, a quite, as you say, deep underground look. I mean, what was your role in that? Was it, obviously, you were managing the band. It was a creative role as well, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It was um, an unusual thing, really, because, um, you know, there is... There's a little bit... There's quite a bit in the book about Adam's letters to me, his love letters that he sent me. So I was a sort of, I guess, a, a, a real incarnation of what his art fantasy was. So I was somebody that... One of his... You know, Alan Jones... Um, uh, Eric Stanton, you know, all that sort of sado sex masochism stuff. Yeah. Uh, and um, he, he adored it. I mean, and he was willing to dress in masks and, uh, you know, just off his own back. But I did, you know, you, you can see, if you look at the pictures, um, there's some pictures in the book as well, but, um, you know, he used a lot of what I wore in my makeup, like one dark eye. Um, it was it was very bold for a man to wear that sort of clothing and that sort of look. And was this a mutual, you know, idea, feeding of yes, ideas? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So would you sit there and talk about ideas together? Like, you know, like why don't you just talk about a little step further? Yeah, and yeah, I mean, even actually right up until Kings, which I think still is a well, it'll be a, a historically wonderful album forever. I think. Great records. Yeah. Great records. The whole thing has just got to. Um, a heart and soul of its own, I think. Um, but all those ringlets, even up to that time, you know, I, I um, designed his hair for him, really, in a very strange way. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, it was a really great thing. We got asked to go on top of the pots because it shot up the charts suddenly. And uh, they, they asked us, you know, can you come on tonight? I want to say that from all the way from being underground. Yeah. Barricaded to your dressing room Bristol. Actually, yeah. yeah. eight months later, you get yeah. a phone call the pops. Tonight, right? Yeah. And we had this idea of what we were going to look like, what he was going to look like. 
But I needed to have um, a hairpiece for it. It was to make the remix. Oh, to make it longer to yeah, add. Yeah, yeah. No, you really can't grey that overnight, could you? So you'd have no, you can't grow that overnight. <laughs> <laughs> so I ran around the corner from 430 Kings Road when there was a little um, hairdresser. I said, I need a hairpiece now. She said, well, all I've got is um, this brown. I don't want it brown. It can't be brown. It's got to be black. Yeah. Dark brown. Not, not, I can't have that. Yeah. And she said, well, that's all I've got. So I took it home and I cut it into little pieces so that he could tack it into his hair. And, and I, I put a, um, like a Sharpie pen on it. <laughs> so I made it black yeah. and just hoped that on that performance it wasn't going to all run down his face. <laughs> yeah. And they were all stuck on the wall. I had to dry them really quickly. So I stuck them on the door of my flat, actually. Individual ringlets, all stuck on the door. <laughs> so so what, what did you find out that, or he found you, he, he came to the shop, he saw you, this is the vision of all his art ideas, or I think probably a few more visions or something as well. There might have been a few more. There you are, the, at the time, in the very underground way, the very famous, very fierce St. Jordan, the, the, the dominatrix behind the counter. Yeah. He walks in, so what did he do, what's his reaction to that? Well, I mean, of course, it started with these love letters. He was like a little mousy person. Came in and sort of looked at me, sort of round the corner a lot. And I pretended to look through the clothes, but he wasn't looking through the clothes at all. Um, and he sent all these love letters, which came, there were two posts a day in those days, of course. So I probably got, I don't know how many, I've got, still got them all, uh, originally in their envelopes. What, what, what they're saying about this? Oh, it's lovely. Like, one day um, I'll be worthy for you to look at me. Um, uh, I love you. Um, please think of me one day. One day we'll, we'll, I'll be able to talk to you. Um, stick this by your bed. Put this on your wall. Please don't throw this away. And it was all little Xeroxes of me in rubber that he'd ripped out, you know, really rough, you know, ripped out bits. Folded up with his own kiss, his own lips with lipstick on, kiss, yeah, kiss. I mean, I mean, the beautiful side of letters, but it does seem an odd way to see the dominatrix to me. It does. So he's in the shop, and he's like, but still have no idea. These, these letters get posted to the shop, you find them. What's the frequency of them? Every few, every few days? Uh, two, two every day. Two every day. So it's going on for about yeah. a week this year. Yeah. yeah. And he must have posted them at different times, otherwise, you wouldn't have got two, yeah. they would have all been in one post. Yeah. So he'd post one, wait for a couple of hours, maybe or three hours, and do a second one. Yeah. So it came as the second post. And then Michael Collins, who managed the shop, who you work with, yes. just like a close friend. Yes. And, and he worked out who he was like, how did he do it? Did he sort of... Well, first of all, he looked at his lips, didn't he, yeah. Because there was lipstick kisses on the letters, so... Yeah. Michael was very much like the Sweeney in this here. <laughs> <laughs> he's coming in the shop, he's got lips shaped like that. <laughs> and then he was looking at the postmark as well, wasn't he? Where did they come from? And then obviously the handwriting. So his final cunning key to girl was to say, can you write something down for me? <laughs> he also said, oh, oi mate, you know, where did you come from? Yeah. yeah. Can you write your address down? Yeah. <laughs> so lips. Writing where you live. Yeah. 
And then you're absolutely out of in the middle of the shop. Thanks to the good work of Mary Whitehouse. Well, what we were saying about 
actually Adam was I got him into that film and also to finish the story um, Jane well Wayne County no Jane County Jane Jane Rogers um, he, I went to audition him at Dingwalls so he got in the film as well yeah. for that and I think it rounds the film beautifully musically. I think yeah. it's a great soundtrack. Yeah, it's a great yeah. soundtrack. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he wasn't the actor that I, you know, I don't really like actors very much. Yeah. Uh, it put me off acting, actually, making that film. You're not really acting at all, are you? That's something no, you, isn't it? No, I know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the people like um, like Jane, Wayne, whatever, were, were the heart of that throbbing music scene. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, Adam was as well, and just beginning, really. So, Derek um, Jarman, was he, was he fascinated with Paul? What, what was his take on it? Derek Jarman, <coughs> was, um, apart from just being a great artist as well, because people forget about his art um, a bit, uh, he um, had this great brain that he could just like take everything in. He wanted to suck up mm. the world if he could. If he could live long enough, he'd want to suck the whole world up. He was also one of these, these men who... Um, sort of stuck by a cast of people that he actually loved, yeah. deeply loved as people. So, um, you know, I, I was in Sebastiani briefly before that. Um, I was also <coughs> in Jubilee, of course. And then after that, I was in The Last of England. And then I also was in Blue, which was when he was very, very poorly. And I, uh, they came to my house in in Seaford, into my bedroom, and just recorded, because Blue is just a, uh, I don't know if anyone's seen it here, probably Stuart you have a here, yeah. um, it's, just, um, it's just a blue screen, because, because he had AIDS, um, uh, apparently, you, you, you went blind, of course, but you could only see, you see a sort of blue behind your lids, and um, I know people think it's probably just because the word blue, but it was, I think, probably what a lot of people were seeing if they had that disease and it was, it was incurable yeah, yeah. at that time. Yeah. So um, they came into my bedroom and, and uh, I recorded stuff yeah. just in my spare bedroom. Just as some, you were, yeah, 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 yeah. spontaneous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you said, he thrived on spontaneous. He did. And, you know, I think it's absolutely the most wonderful thing in your life if you can be spontaneous. Adam as well, you know, was like that. So, I mean, what was it like working with Michael Billy? Working with Malcolm and Vivian, well, they're just, um, the whole thing is that you, you look at those two people who had very different skills. Uh, one was a very image-based image skill, which is Malcolm. Uh, Jamie Reid, of course, provided this most beautiful backdrop of amazing images, uh, which really, you know, were frontline stuff. And we're talking right out there. Um, yeah, and with great slogans as well. And he was <coughs> friends with Malcolm from Goldsmith yeah, College. Yeah, 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 that's where they first met. Yeah, they first met there. And um, and then Vivian with this wonderful skill of of uh, design and looking at clothes and looking at shapes, and both of them very being totally uncompromising about yeah. the what they made their garments out of. Yeah. What, what was your role in it? I mean, you weren't just working on the camera shop, which is cool, a cool job, but you're part of the pool of ideas, aren't you? They, we were included in it, yes. I mean, Vivian uh, and Malcolm both um, 
really appreciate the fact, I guess, that I was uh, like a free agent, really, a sort of a flying bullet, you know, that could land anywhere. So yes. it was, it was, it was a great thing because they would bring the, the last for the shoes in, and we would uh, we would see what they looked like. And sometimes Mike and I would say, well, "Look, come on, you know, you've got a really skinny foot. You know, not everyone's got a foot like you." So with these people come into shop, like out to see you out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was um. God, it was mad actually. I mean, I, I used to. You know, a lot of people came from the Midlands and the North, Scotland, Ireland, all over. Um, and they were, um, these are the ordinary people that made punk, actually. They were the ones, obviously. And uh, they, you know, if somebody had a load of money, as I said before, it didn't necessarily mean that they were going to look great in those clothes. So I would sometimes give things to people who hadn't got enough money. There's many people who've come up to me. Uh, over the years and said, do you remember, you know, you handed that t-shirt to me? I said, I'll just give us a quid. <laughs> <laughs> or someone who said, I, you know, they got trained out from Newcastle. Yeah. And, uh, Is it that's probably poorly money, don't we? Yes. Yeah. 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 And they hadn't got any money. They brought the train fares, everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, just you know, just give them yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that's such a pivotal thing, that whole experience. It's almost like a religious experience because you have to get off at Sloane Square and it's about a mile until you reach. Well, actually, yeah. Vivian, Vivian reminded us, didn't yeah. she, of the fact that they used to have police at Sloane Square to yeah. escort the punks up the King's Road. Because the tapes would be Yeah. 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 And I've totally forgotten that. Yeah. What, what was it like meeting Andy Warhol? Is there a common ground now? Is it? Well, I'm fascinated by, by the way think, you look at it. I think I'm going to give this to Cathy because what Vivian said when we first walked in on, on the interview for this book. Oh, it was brilliant. She went, oh, Andy Warhol was so disappointed when he met me. He just looked me up and down and went, because I wasn't neutral. Was <laughs> 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 her opening gambit? Yeah. It was the perfect, because she's interviewing my thing and given her a break. You can fill this in, Jordan. Because you always got on very well with him. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you know, he, he, um, well, I, I had gone, uh, first of all, I met him in New York at the factory. Yeah. His own factory. And uh, we shared this orange cake. Um, we had, you know, to, to the middle, we both had a spoon each. It was from a, a local cakey shop. Yeah. Uh, he sent someone out to get it. It was obviously his favourite cake. But it was amazing because he just said, you know, we talked about the IRA actually, we were talking seriously political stuff, um, you know, about the imagery of uh, a lot of the bombings that had happened. There was that great shot of um, the pub that was, that was, um, was it in the skin? Which is the pub? It was Birmingham pub, obviously. It's quite a lot. Awful, awful, awful <laughs> yes. shot of um, all the glasses. Some oh, yeah, of them were still intact. Yeah. Some of them were smashed to pieces, but yeah. you could tell that there were dead people underneath. Yeah. The, the camera so he was quite a Very much, yeah. yeah. So he talked about all that. Um, and then he took me to see all of his, his work. Wow. Uh, you know, he had this side room which 
Yeah, had all those lovely prints all in proper trays. Did he ask you about what you know your book has been a work of art? Yes, yes, he did. Yeah. yeah. Did he have that kind of concept? You wrote a yes, he did. Work of art. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. In fact, I am trying to track down some photos, which I don't know what's happened to them. But he took some really um, interesting photos of me there with penguins. Because he was very into taxidermy at that time. And I was wearing so all black and white. Yeah. I was, all, I was wearing all black and white. What's he trying to say? I don't know. <laughs> he got, this, got somebody to put all these penguins down in a big shelf in the factory, which had a lot of taxidermy animals above it. And uh, he hooked them all down and put them, laid, them at, laid them at my feet. Yeah. And took these photos of me on the, the famous couch at the factory. Well, I think he had a similar reaction to you, didn't he, to Derek John and to Adam? Because he was somebody that had transformed yourself, and he was, wasn't he? I mean, he came from very humble backgrounds and forced himself into stardom, basically. And was actually a much shyer person, wasn't he? And another thing is, he didn't fit the mould. Yeah, I mean, the most amazing thing about punk is that everybody. Nobody was excluded. Nobody had to fit into a mould. Mm. Nobody had to be the right height. Nobody had to be the right size. Nobody had to, you know, if you were, if you had some sort of disability of any sort, you were accepted. Didn't matter what colour you were. Mm. It made no difference. And you know, Andy's perfect at that because he's a perfect example of it. Mm. Because you know, he always thought himself as a work of art. He made himself. Yeah, and if you read his books, he made himself every day yeah. from nothing. Yeah. So listen, why, why are you so interested in the transformation? Why, why would Andy Warhol be interested in his transformation rather than more? You know, what's that thing about people to transform themselves to something <laughs> larger than life or something quite wonderful, colourful? Well, I, I just think it's treating yourself, if you, if, you want, if you want, as a work of art. You don't have to limit art to paper, canvas walls, um, just, you know, a lot of people walked around in those days and they were works of art. And I think you can make anything of yourself if you want to. The only way you can do it and be really, really happy with that is if you're absolutely and utterly comfortable. <clears throat> and there's no point in trying to mimic anybody. Um, you, just, you just can express yourself with what you put on your face and your clothes. I mean, it all started with me in second-hand shops. You know, wonderful 40s, 50s clothes that you could customise. Um, there will be nothing left in second-hand shops now because nothing is made well enough to last. Those things were beautiful and original. Um, oh, crikey, I can remember exact things that I used to buy there. And well, it was one of the great things about the book, you detail, the detail all the clothes. Yeah, yeah, I love the yeah, detail yeah, of the book, yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, was it, were you enjoying the actual transformation, look in your mirror, this looks great, or do you actually enjoy that little free song of people going, ah, what the fuck, as well? Do you feel, do you enjoy that sort of separation, that escape? Do you know, I, I, I often didn't meet people eye to eye, because it was, um, they were very confrontational. Yeah. I, mean, I thought I'd go from Seaford, this small place, and go to London, and in a way, be cocooned, and, you know, I don't know. I didn't want, I didn't want to be necessarily accepted, that's not the right word, but perhaps not be somewhere like in Seaford. Yeah. And I've got exactly the same sort of reactions from people in London. Mm. They're the guys that didn't understand the sexuality of things. 
that I was um, an independent woman, that I wasn't dressing to uh, titillate or provoke. And this is an extremely sexist period in history as well, isn't it? It really, really is. Yeah. Well, Probably the worst, actually, I think. Yeah. It's the days of, you know, page three. Yeah. Uh, and they, you know, they would see me. How stupid, you know, I'd be walking in the middle of the street down Kensington High Street, so, uh, with rubber on or leather on, not, not much clothes on, because I felt comfortable wearing it. And why would they think I was a prostitute? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nobody would do that. Yeah. And they were wolf whistling, good, give us one. And, you know, quite a confrontation. They'd come up to me sometimes. Would you switch off the wall? Yes, just, just walk on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Equally, I did also wear camouflage. I wore, um, later on in the 80s, I wore um, original tiger stripe from America. You know, Vietnam, American tiger stripe. They were equally, uh, really very confused about that. Because yeah. this is a woman wearing an American combat gear mm. all those years ago. So it's quite good to take things out of context and yeah. change yeah. the yeah. idea of them. Yeah. So when you, when you went, you, so you had this idea to go to London, you escape to London. It took you a bit of time to move there, but it, you, you, you got you. Were you working at Harrods first? I worked at Harrods yeah. first, yeah. And then you heard about the shop. That's how I got the job there. Even my mum was amazing. <laughs> That's brilliant, very nice. Your mum's parting words of day and we're bothering to see the money on the train phone. <laughs> And they gave you the job straight away. <laughs> so how did you hear about uh, Sex Chop? Did you just... Look, um, I'm not actually sure which magazine. It's one of two. It's either 19 or Honey, if anyone can remember either of those. <laughs> yeah. They were like little girly sort of glosses, really. Yeah. With um, lots of fashion things in it. But on the front page, uh, the first page in, they would have a little tiny section of what's going on, what's new, and... There was something about the size of a sort of a uh, stamp in there about this shop on King's Road. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, it was. Um, was it? Oh, let it rock. It was let it rock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I, I went. I thought this sounds so interesting. It's, it's actually me, but there. Yeah. So I went and got the train, and I went up there, and it's fucking closed. <laughs> you go all the way up. And, built your courage up to speak to somebody. Um, and then I thought, well, okay, well, I've got to get a job. I think I've got to move now. So I got that job at Harrods, and I went back to the shop quite soon after. Now, I remember you once told me when you went to the shop, you just you didn't put your best clothes on. Well, these, these are your best clothes. You're not like a little suit on. No, 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 no. You were dancing down there, trusting yeah, yeah. your ballet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dancing yeah. down the King's Road. I love that image. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I used to wear them... Um, because I love ballet, it's a, it's a never-ending love of mine. Mm-hmm. But I use I have tights and, and really lovely those um, stilettos, those American spring later stilettos, which were great, and a leotard that was just pulled off a shoulder. Um, and I just that's all I wore. And that's what I went to the shop in. Well, I had a little plastic belt, which was a fifties belt, which was a beautiful thing. And you went into the shop, and so it's only the manager, Michael Collins, right. especially for he's the only person actually in the shop that day, thinking at yeah. that point yeah, in time. It's on his own, yeah. And was it a job advertised? You just walked no, in there saying, no Can, job can I have no. a job? Yeah. Yeah. Walked in and said, I really want to work here. And uh, he said, Well, I have to sit on the bed. 
And, what, was, um, what was the bed like? The bed's not the usual thing to have in a shop, is it? The bed was like, you know, if you can imagine those old TB clinics, you know, where <laughs> we used to wheel people out to take the air to cure them. Yeah. Um, and it was like a, just, just like pipe work, really. Those really ancient old hospital beds with wheels on, sort of big wheels. Yeah. Uh, with a big pink rubber sheet over it. Yeah, it's stuck to your arse. Well, Michael only told me years later when we were writing this book that he'd had a real good sex session on that bed. He'd gone to, gone to work early for a change, and uh, there was some black guy that he really fancied. And they'd had wild sex on that bed, and he hadn't had time to wash it down before I went. <laughs> I think I might have done, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Thanks, Michael, for telling me like 40 years later. (laughs) And that's basically how we got the job in the shop. Three three hours we chatted and laughed until actually I could have wet the bed and cleaned it. So (laughs) it was really great, it was. Uh, And we knew that we we knew I had to be there as well. So then they made you the face of the shop one moment, didn't they? So you, which is unusual, isn't it? you think they would want to be the face of the shop. They seem to have with somebody who's younger than them because they're already, yeah. oh, really old in their late 20s, weren't they? Yeah, but you, yeah, yeah. 1920s, so they yeah, see you yeah, as yeah. representing a generation that's trying to appeal to, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, I, th- I think um, there, was, there was a multitude of things was that actually people wanted, they got very interested in the shop. Um, I think probably because there's been a little bit of press, but not only that, I mean, I have to be honest, they probably saw me as some sort of sexual dominatrix type, you know, really interesting looking person. Or an embodiment of what I know Embodiment, yeah. yeah. Whereas Vivian was like a kind of bit scarecrow, yeah, very pretty, and I thought she looked gorgeous. But not perhaps what they wanted. And also, Vivian's mind is very, very often turned it's all the time. And anyone who's seen her, any interview with her, you, you'll know that. Uh, uh, and she can't even, you know, put a book together, to be honest. And it's hopeless. Because it's in there, and her genius is in there, but to get it out is really difficult. So they would rather really speak to me about it. Yeah. Vivian was quite happy with that. Yeah. yeah. She would rather... Um, because she, she used to interrogate people who came to interview them, you know, her. <coughs> they wanted to ask about the shop. They wanted to find out more. And I'm thinking, fuck, you know, just get the shop on her. Yeah. Just get people Cut to know about it. Cut to the chase for the end. Cut That's to the chase. Yes. Yeah, yeah. She can't do it. No. So, so it became, yeah. I became that sort of spokes. So in the early days, the music, what's your part of music play with the jukebox in there? What are you I mean, was music a very poor part of what's going on, or was it mainly the clothes? Well, I mean, earlier, bef- before yeah. that, very important. It was the rock and roll. Be- well, oh, for you, yeah. For, for me, me it was to shop, do with yeah. uh, the Velvet Underground, and to do with David Bowie, to do with mm. Stooges. Mm. Um, it was just that whole... Uh, you know, David Bowie actually reinvented these people because they'd been around. Mm. Certainly, the Velvet Underground had, and he brought all of that right back to the forefront again. So that was my background in music. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I would, you know, Velvet Underground, Venus and Furs means a bacon sandwich, actually, to me. My mum bringing me up a bacon sandwich on Sunday morning. 
Like this bacon sandwich. Yeah. So it's a different image, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But, but the jukebox, of course, was Malcolm's influence, and he had this enormous uh, ability and knowledge, uh, and actually very really went to suck in knowledge about new music as well. Mm-hmm. But he had a... Apart from, I really hated Blue Moon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everyone used to press that button, and I just say, I want I'm going to take that. <laughs> <laughs> Add on to that. So, so one day as Martha Cummings, I thought, oh, I want to manage about and go to New York. Was it, was it like that? Or was there always a sense that he was going to try and find his own kind of modern-ish equivalent? Well, yeah. yeah, I think he had an agenda in his head, actually. So, yeah, that's what I want to know. I want to know he, the agenda. He had, this, yeah. he had this vision of what the music was, and he, and he did that with Adam, of course. He gave him a list of things to go and look at. Um, to, to see what you could come up with, and I think it was actually um, it was a it was a kind of a mean thing to do because he wanted Adam to fail. Mm. He oh, wanted him out of out of his vision of the future. Okay, so because he was yeah. he was a book half written, you know. He had his own mind. He was an artist. He knew how to paint things. He could storyboard things. So in a way, Malcolm wanted somebody who was um, like a raw. Um, puppets. Yeah, not a puppet, yeah, right. but, but somebody who could be manipulated. Or even project, obviously. Yes, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but backtracking a bit, yeah, when you start music, trying, yeah. trying, you went over to see the dolls. Yeah, so, which again is difficult, because they're only fully formed, you're trying, you're trying yeah. to change if something else didn't work. Well, why would it work? Yeah. Because if we're talking about America, you can't dress these people with a hammer and sickle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in America, it's not on. <coughs> you know, nobody's going to go and see them. Yeah. And they, they're a great band. Yeah. So, you know, you're looking back on time, you could have taken that, those guys who are great musicians, mm. very, very uh, charismatic, and made something else. And, you know, it's, it's a little story of how he sort of took a step too far, he, which he did later on with the Pistols, taking them to America, mm. thinking that yeah. they would be accepted there in Hicksville somewhere. So he really understood. You know, he thought he was omnipotent, yeah. is the word. Or, or do you just really understand the codes of pop culture in the UK, but they don't translate They don't translate to America at all. Yeah. No, no. They're, we're talking seriously. So he comes back, his fingers are slightly burned, but I imagine not uh, his confidence not identity. He comes back to the UK, mm-hmm. he's looking for. He's, not, he's looking for a band. It's a few bands he tries at the Yeah, He's looking for something to, again, project his ideas onto, isn't he? Yeah. Um, of course, he's, he's again got no real managerial skills, except that he's got a mind where he wants to provoke all the time, which is, which is great and create yeah. at the same time, yeah. And, um, you know, to get, um, truthfully, to get that bunch of guys together eventually, you know, after John joined, was genius, but it, it, you know, it could not have happened, it may not have happened. It's very, very by chance. It's kind of like a chance that those people are already attracted to the shops. It's back to that sense of the shop is the space where things happen. I mean, actual audition for John to join the band is in the shop. It is in the shop. There's three yeah. people there, Mark and Vivian and you. So what was that like? Well, John was very like, mm, you know, like he always is. And um, very sort of self, self-conscious. Um, and he, he was just, I don't know. What is amazing is that John probably thought he was shit. <laughs> But Malcolm thought he was just great. Yeah. And because he was so he was so self-conscious and so 
kind of creepy in a way. I'm vulnerable as well. I'm very yeah. vulnerable. Which yeah. made him much more fascinating. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure I did rock and roll sick like a Mick Jagger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The anti Jagger in a sense. Yeah. This really strange looking. Well, actually, famously, Mick Jagger was frightened to go in the shop. Because he bought the shirt. He, stay, yeah. he stayed in the, the telephone box around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, as the story goes, he waited for a while and then sort of. Okay. And then just went away. Yeah, just went away. I mean, for those first six months, you went to lot of those early gigs. Very much, yeah. yeah, I loved them. Oh, yeah. There really was nothing to match the yeah. Sex Pistols. In what kind of way? Just, In every way. Just the way it felt, the intensity every of it all. Yeah. Just the bizarreness of it. In fact, every yeah. night was different. Uh, every night was totally spontaneous. You never knew what was going to happen. Um, you never knew if there was going to be uh, a confrontation with John or with an audience member. Mm-hmm. It was it was absolutely um, you know every every it sounds a bit corny but every every night was a work of art really on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, you never saw the same thing twice ever. Was there a sense that this is going to really change things? Really it's, it's only about 30 people most of these gigs, isn't it? Yeah, you know, when you look back and you look at the audiences and anyone who was clever enough to take photos, not of the band, a lot of people, uh, Derek Ridges, for instance, yeah. great photographer, he was clever enough to turn the camera on the audience. Then you get the context. Then you get the context. Yeah, yeah. And you often see great big gaps where there's like nobody. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and only the brave, bravest went up to the front of the... Yeah. The stage, because you did, you were confronted with this band. They were. I mean, right on you. Yes, they're a great band at that time, and it's an intense experience for you and about 20 people. But what's the sense? Do Mark, do you feel that like Mark was thinking this is just going to tear the fabric of culture, or was he just? Or would he say that? Or would he, do you think he was just bullshitting or what? What was it? Like? No, I thought I think he was absolutely certain. You knew it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah he did. Yeah. And would you know that? Would you get that as well? Would you get that feeling watching them? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the only trouble was that I mean, you know, it's very hard to keep up that intensity uh, and to do it with realism. So, what point did it start to be less intense? Or not quite the same thing? Was it the boat trip or? I think the the beginning of the end was the boat party. No. I think. And that sort of boredness, you know, that sort of, you know, I'm really bored with this, you know. You know, feel, get the feeling you've been cheated. Yeah. You know, that kind of gives you the impression that they're um, already running out of steam. And I don't, I don't, I completely agree with that because if you are really that committed, you, how can you keep doing it forever? Especially that, that level of intensity. That level of intensity, yeah. 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 And singing the same. I mean, it would have been great if they'd done like three albums. You might notice, you know, when you look at punk records and that of that era, there are so few second albums. Yeah. Such a It's just one album yeah. they got out. Yeah. And that does like a lot of bands. I mean, even for you yourself. Because yeah. there's a hangover, isn't it? You, you go through that, it's intense, you're right now, but you, you hang out around your wall hole, you're looking up to go for dinner with Brown Ferry, <laughs> <laughs> you're looking yeah. up to get Green Moon 20 times a day with Junior Box, but then the whole thing stops, doesn't it? There's, there's a bit, but that tension kind of goes, and you, you find yourself drifting, don't you? Kind of things get perverted. Um, I don't mind that, actually, because I think, you know, this is what makes things special in life. Pop, periods of history and, and you can look up, let's not forget this is history 
uh, and that's what you should learn from. Was it a sensitive issue at the time? Uh, yeah, there was lettering, yeah. I think. I didn't go up to the shop thinking it was going to be history. Yeah. But it felt, it felt important in some yeah, kind of way. Very much so, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I think that that light that shines really brightly, that, yeah. you know, that old saying, yeah. is, um, is, is more valuable than you'd sort of going out with a whimper. You know? So, so the handover bit, the bit afterwards, how do you, how do you deal with that? Probably not that long, I imagine. Uh, a lot of things fell to pieces for me, physically, mentally, well, not mentally, no, uh, physically. Um, and the ideology of it had all really crumbled for me. And it turned into, you know, nostalgia of mud turned into this sort of, um, although it was a great shop, I mean, it was designed by De uh, Roger Burton, and it was a, it's amazing. Yes, it was an artwork. Was. The shop was an artwork. But, you know, that drug culture just infiltrated into that and it was becoming completely a total mess. Yeah. And I, I knew for my own sake you had to get away. I mean, the heroin that's coming to see... It had been in there all the time. Yeah. Get more and more before you close, it's stifling more people's intensity. Yeah. It's a drug that makes people not do anything anymore. Yeah. Um, some, some drugs sort of open people's minds. Uh, and some drugs just shut them down, and that's what that does, I think. And you went back to see you for it together? I did, I did. I went back to um, save my, uh, my marriage broke up uh, because of that, actually. Um, and I'm just, you know, glad that I had the strength to do it, actually, because mm -hmm. a lot of people didn't, and they died. So, so for a long time, you, you were sort of off the scene, weren't you? You know, people say, George, she's working for Benz. You know, this is quite, people quite fascinated by this idea. Why, why not? Why should you? But yeah. then you start to come back. You start to reappear. Like, yeah. in our exhibition. Oh, that's children, isn't it? Right. Yeah. So you, why, why did you decide to slightly sort of start re-emerging again? I think that the, the, the real, there were two big catalysts, you know, big turning points. One was the British Library exhibition uh, in 2016, which was beautifully curated and really clever, uh, and, and quite minimalist actually, but it didn't have a load of crap in it. And I talked to a lot of people at that party, the first party, and I realised that people were um, um, very much still extremely fascinated by it all, and very, you know, uh, very, it's, it's hard, makes your sort of heart sort of, I don't know, weep sometimes with these lovely stories that they have about um, how much, how much yeah. it, it meant, I meant, other people meant. Um, and I, I realised as well, um, I think, you know, it's passed on to other generations in some way or other, because people are saying, oh, my kids, like, like, they're really open-minded because of what happened then yeah. and what I gave to them, which is lovely. Um, and also I met Kathy and I wanted to do a book. I've been asked a lot of times um, and I don't believe that you should ever do a book when you're young because you haven't been lived a life. That's the point. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, it came across, it just came up really. It came, but yeah, it came at the perfect point where it was supposed to happen. When you'd lived with that story for long enough that you wanted to tell it, and that you trusted me to tell it, and Roger was the conduit. He was the one that did the nostalgia of mud, and he also mm -hmm. did well. Don't he invented 
from a pub in the Midlands, actually, from a pub named Dudley that's built over a mine shaft, where he took the idea of that to build. So anyway, but he was Newman. We haven't talked about Mr. Newman. Wow. <laughs> with the specialist help of a very special electrician that helped Roger to, to put the lights into that shop. Which blew up on the opening night. <laughs> Which could only have happened when the man he installed those lights was actually Thunderclap Newman. <laughs> Our electrician was Thunderclap Newman. That was a bloody thunderclap that night. I mean, there's so many and strange, insane stories in this book that you would never think to link together, and that's mm. been the beauty of doing it, hasn't yeah. it? It's been a. It's, of course, it's a nice story. It's a fantastic but, story. But the detail in it yeah. and the evocative imagery, the atmosphere, is, it makes a difference. It feels like a book. I mean, you, you write books, you've written I've seven written, books. I've written no, I've written a biography before that. And there will now, I've never written anything. No. But, but, but the way you write it, it's like you're almost writing one of your other books. So I could feel, I could hear your voice in the book, and I like that. I like the way this, obviously it's Jordan's story, Jordan's voice is in the book, mm. but I can also hear your voice and the way you write your books. And it, it's very evocative and it captures a period of time and, and a, a, a long lost version of London as well. well. Yeah, what we hope is when you read it, you'll feel that you're in the ring with all these people. Mm. You want to just bring back those Jordan's life and times and all the things that fed into that, all the brilliant. All the people who maybe never got their say as well, you know, the people we talk to, the people we couldn't talk to because they're not here anymore but they're mentioned, mm. you know, we tried to present the full picture. And because I think all of us, like you and Adam Art is very important to you, that you're really involved in that. And I've tried to be an art student and I've always really loved art. And our publishers have let us present the book in a really artistic, brilliant way with Graham Humphrey's fantastic cover. And it take, almost takes it away from that sort of heritage industry that's grown up around fun mm-hmm. and try to make, you know, this is why it was so exciting that all these amazing things happen. And Roger did say the thing that about punk, in all other aspects of fashion, it's led by one person, but punk is lots of people are involved in it. And it feels really democratic because everyone has an equal say. It belongs, it belongs to everyone. And it spread like a virus throughout the country and it came from all the little bedrooms and everybody's dreams. And yeah, it's also been around for centuries. Yeah, exactly. You know, there wasn't a name for it, but every, every painter started first being a cubist or, yeah. and all of their friends who you know, were similar artists going, what the fuck is this all about? Yeah. You know, you're yeah. bonkers. Yeah. You know, you're a Dardanist. What the fuck is that? Yes, it's a virus throughout history. It's a virus throughout history. And just that, you know, we're, we're living in that time that it happened to us in a, in a different way. But by the 16th century, there were painters, yeah. you know, forever. Caravaggio. Caravaggio, good point. Yes, very much. Yeah, yeah. And then it's Hayworth and them going like that to the establishment. And yeah. Hogarth's world was the same world where the Sex Pistols had their rehearsal studios on the same spot <laughs> that he was. Yeah. You know, there's this amazing tapestry of history to yeah, it. The layers and layers and layers. Yeah. Which which you feel in the book, you know, yeah. which, which is one of the things I like about it. It's written, uh, it's not, obviously it's not a work of fiction, but it's written in a literate 
ways that that's happening in your voice and in your novel. Well, Jordan's story is got the, the, the scope of a novel, and yeah. Uh, yeah. I wanted every chapter to be like a cliffhanger that you can't wait to get to the next. Yeah. You know, yeah. Literally, yeah. 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 <laughs> you have been listening to the John Rob tapes with me, John Rob. Brought to you by Lush and Louder Than War, this podcast was produced and engineered by Andrew Payne. If you enjoy this, please retweet it and tell your mates. Thanks for listening. Every joke is a tiny revolution, said George Orwell, and each week comedian Tiff Stevenson interviews fellow comics such as Nish Kumar and Sarah Pascoe about the power of comedy to disrupt. Imagine a custard pie splatting into a human face forever. Find Tiny Revolutions wherever you find podcasts and at lushplayer.com. Thank <music> you.